You're listening to the Hope Assembly podcast with Pastor Ryan Day. For more information, you can visit us online at hopeassembly.org. Please enjoy this week's sermon. How many ready for the word this morning? I don't know what you're drinking today. I have a iced latte. Hopefully you have something wonderful to drink. Also, before we get into the scripture, I do want to say I'm recording from home. Obviously, we're doing this from my house. And so I think my neighbors are doing some construction earlier. I've been hearing a lot of banging and stuff like that. So if that happens, my apologies for that background noise. If my dog starts whining or barking, also my apologies for the background noise. But it is what it is. We're making the best of it. We're going to continue our series, um, The Psalms and the Soul. We're on part six, and I'm hoping that this is encouraging your heart. That's the intent behind this series, uh, to be encouraged in the Lord. And we're at Psalm 139, as you heard the Rupp family read earlier, Psalm 139. One of my favorite psalms, I've heard people say before, um, some biblical scholars have said that this, out of all the Psalms, is one that should be memorized by every believer because of the depth and riches in this Psalm. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time on this. And as I was soaking in this Psalm and and thinking through it this week, um, you know, I was thinking about a couple of months ago, we added a new addition to our family. We've got a new puppy. Um, He actually just turned a year old, but we got him just a couple of months ago. His name is Hugo. He's a French Bulldog. And um, he's just a little guy um, with a lot of spirit, if you will, a lot of heart. And, you know, he was, uh, um, we had to adopt him because he was actually returned from the original uh, family that had him. They couldn't care for him well. And so he has a little bit of separation anxiety, has a little bit of issue trusting. And so we spent the last couple of months working with Hugo. And I've noticed that that over the months, he started to get a little bit more familiar with us, a little bit more familiar with routines. But at first, there was quite a bit of anxiety. He was at, as if um, he thought that perhaps the there wasn't enough petting to go around because we have two other dogs that are older. He thought maybe there wasn't enough food to go around. Maybe there weren't enough toys or maybe the beds would run out. Maybe he didn't have a place that everything that was available was limited. And so he was very um, aggressive, if you will, and, and with anxiety to make sure that he got his, that he was there to get the petting. If somebody was being petted, he needed to be there to get petted because there might not be enough for everybody. And the the longer we've had him, the more he's settled down. And in some ways, I think Hugo is right. Like there is a limited amount of petting that we can give to our dogs. There is a limited amount of food that we can provide for them. There's a limited amount of attention that we can give them because we're infinite people. Uh, Excuse me, we're finite, finite people. And so we can't give him infinite amounts of attention or food or petting or whatever. But then it got me thinking about how we interact with God the anxiousness that oftentimes we feel in the presence of God, that sometimes we find ourselves sort of aggressively uh, approaching life or approaching life with anxiousness because we may have this internal idea uh, that God might abandon us or that will God forget about us or is God is God going to help us in these situations? And so sometimes what will happen is there will be an anxiety or a fear or even an anger that will rise up in us 
which are indicators of perhaps this idea that we are afraid that God is like us, that God is finite in his ability to sustain us, in his ability to be with us, in his ability to provide, to to help us, that maybe he will forget even who we are. But I'm here to tell you, Psalm 139 gives us this beautiful picture, this beautiful idea that God is not like us, that he is not finite like we are. God is infinite. And Psalm 139 lets us look into David's uh, musing upon his contemplation of the infiniteness of God, the majesty, the wonder and awe filled heart of David as he reflects on who God is. And so we're going to look at that just real quickly this morning. Psalm 139, you know, if you were just reading it sort of academically or theologically, you could read this psalm and sort of discern three uh, distinct uh, divine attributes of God. There, there may be more, um, but today we're going to look at three that you could easily pull out of Psalm 139, these distinct divine attributes of God. And what is a divine attribute? Well, a divine attribute is something we can affirm about God to be true, some aspect of his being and character. Um, and divine attributes are divided really into two sort of categories. There's the communicable um, divine attributes of God and the incommunicable divine attributes, attributes of God. What I mean by that is the communicable, communicable attributes or divine attributes of God are things like love, holiness, uh, goodness, kindness, compassion. These are communicable because God says that, that we should love because he is love. God says that we should be holy because he is holy. So these are attributes that can be communicable, that they can be passed on to you and I, and we can function in these similar attributes that God has, these divine attributes. We can love because God is love. We can be merciful because God is merciful. We can be compassionate because God is compassionate. I hope that makes sense. But then there are these attributes of God that, that are the incommunicable attributes of God. They are things like his self-existence, um, his self-sufficiency, his eternality, um, his sovereignty. These are things that are not passed on to us. We are not self-sufficient. We are not eternal uh, or uh, from, we, we have a beginning and an end, if you will. We don't have uh, the eternality of God. We don't have the sovereignty of God, the ability to rule. We aren't self-existent. We rely upon God to exist. And so these are the incommunicable or some of the incommunicable divine attributes of God. The three for me that stand out more than anything in this psalm are what would be called God's omnis. These are incommunicable attributes of God, the omnis of God. The psalmist is deep in, in deep reflection of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and sort of this trifecta, of you will, of his incommunicable attributes being his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence. So we see David reflecting on the, the nature of God, the, the very attributes of God, three of which that stand out more than anything, God's omniscience, God's um, omnipresence, and God's omnipotence. Now, as educational as that may be, the Psalms aren't intended to be educational per se. That's not to say we won't learn. We don't learn from them. Of course, we do, but the Psalms, um, 
they are songs and they are poems. Uh, they speak of deep truths with stanzas and melodies, with rhythms and rhymes. They're not just educational truths. They are emotional treasure troves filled with the wonder of God. So as we look at Psalm 139 this morning, I want us to look at it not from an educational standpoint of these divine attributes of God. I want us to look at it from the perspective that David had when he wrote this psalm, that he was filled with awe and wonder, that he was in this sort of emotional state of declaring the glory of God as he reflected upon these divine attributes of God, that in these things he found this wonder, these treasure troves of wonder and awe, powerful. Psalm 139 isn't a psalm about David or me, per se, or you even, per se. You and I, I'm not the center of any of the scripture. Neither was David. It's a psalm about God, my maker, and his deep, intimate knowing of me. So Psalm 139, we are not the centerpiece of the psalm. You are not the centerpiece of the psalm. God is the centerpiece of the psalm, but he's the centerpiece of the psalm as our maker. And as our maker who is deep and intimately knowing us, his people. If you're taking notes, I would write this down as sort of the big phrase that kept going off in my spirit as I was reading and meditating this, this psalm. Oh, the wonder to be known. Oh, the wonder to be known. The fact that God, the maker of heaven and earth, knows us intimately and deeply knows us, should fill us with awe, should fill us with wonder. Now let's look at these three real quickly, these three divine attributes of God, the omnis. First, in verses one through six, what I see is the omniscience of God. That simply means that God is all-knowing. If you were to define omniscience, you would say it like this. God knows all things past, present, and future, and all things possible, as well as all things actual. God is an all-knowing God. A.W. Tozer said it like this. To say that God is omniscient is to say that he possesses perfect knowledge and therefore has no need to learn. He goes on and says, but it is more. It is to say that God has never learned and cannot learn. In the first seven verses or six verses here, the psalmist starts off, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar off. You have searched me and known me. Think about that. We could spend weeks breaking down this very verse, this first verse. You have searched me, the, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent one. You have searched me and known me. What does this mean? There is not one thing that you can teach the Lord about you. Not one thing. 
He knows you better than you know you. He knows you more intimately than you know you. Sit on that for a moment. Think about that for a moment. There's nothing going on in your life that he's not fully aware of. There's nothing happening in the very depths of your heart that he's not fully aware of. There is nothing, as Tozer said, that you cannot, God cannot learn, meaning you cannot teach God anything about who you are or what's going on in your heart. He knows you deeply and intimately more than you know you. David reflects here that God knows not only the words that you speak, but also the words you are thinking about speaking. And not only the words that you are thinking about speaking, but the intent behind the words that you are thinking about speaking. Think about the depths and the layers of the wisdom and knowledge of God regarding us. He is so aware of the words on our lips and the thoughts in our minds and the intents of our hearts. He knows us. He's omniscient, the all-knowing one, but not in just an academic, theological way, but in a real, present way, in an intimate, deep way, God knows us. The psalmist uses the most mundane of movements. He knows my sitting and my rising. How many times in a day do we sit down and rise up and sit down and rise up and sit down and rise up and sit down and rise up? It is monotonous. It is mundane. It is, it is not worth notating for most of the part, right? But he's using this most mundane idea to show you like the most, the most smallest of details, God knows. He knows my rising up. He knows my sitting down. He's declaring the wonderful knowledge of God who knows him so intimately. Think about this for a moment. God knows everything. And still, the scripture says that he hems you in behind and before. That though God knows everything about me, even the worst parts of me. He still wants to be with me. He still is, is hemming me. The scripture says he's protecting me and guarding me in, 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 from behind and, and in the front, that, that he is so concerned with me. That, that goes on to say this, that not only does he hem me in behind and before, but also he lays his hand upon you. This isn't some idea of God laying his hand upon us uh, to correct us or rebuke us in anger or frustration. This is a lovingly, assuringly hand laid upon us that he is assuring and loving us deeply. I thought about this when um, I did our son's wedding, our, our first son's, our youngest son's wedding, the first wedding that we did of our sons. When Jocelyn came around the corner and Josiah saw her come, start to come down the aisle, he began to well up and began to weep, overwhelmed with joy. And one of my favorite pictures, at least with me in it, is I reached over and put my hand on his shoulder to lovingly 
and assuringly let him know we are all here for this beautiful moment. We are in this together. I know, son, what a beautiful day this is. This is the kind of idea that David is writing about here, that he lays his hand upon you. He knows your deepest, even darkest thoughts, and yet he still lays his hand upon you lovingly and assuringly. In Psalm 56, 8, in the New Living Translation, it says this, you keep track of all of my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. In 56, Psalm 56 here, he's, he's saying, the psalmist is saying, God, you are so attuned to me, so in tune, so knowledgeable about who I am and what's going on in my life. You are all-knowing, intimately knowing the depths of my being. Timothy uh, Dalrymple said this, the immensity of the love of God is in the intimacy of his care. No sorrow is so small it escapes his attention. The God of the universe the, the same God who set the span of the cosmos and rules over all time and space gathers our tears in a bottle. Oh, he's an omniscient God. He is an all-knowing God. And in his all-knowing, he longs to be intimate with us. Secondly, Verses 7 through 12 begins to sort of declare this idea that not only is he omniscient, all-knowing, but he's also omnipresent, that he is all-present. It would be defined like this, that God is not limited or bounded by space, yet he is present throughout all space, that God does not have size or spatial dimensions and is present at every point of space in his entire being. That's a lot. That could take a while to break down educationally, theologically about the idea of God's omnipresent, that he is everywhere all the time in the same way, in the same measure. For us finite human beings, it is difficult for our minds to comprehend the fullness of that statement. But that is true. Verses 7 through 12 he begins to talk about, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? This is not the desire of the psalmist. He longs not to run away from God. If you understand this correctly, he's recognizing that he is living in the face, in the presence of God. So he's not asking these questions as if he longs to flee from his presence or longs to flee from the spirit. He's reflecting and meditating on the fact that there is nowhere that he could go that he would be absent or separated from the presence of God because God is omni. Present, He recognizes that he is living in the face, in the presence of God. He's making the point of God's relentless nearness to us by abstracting the furthest distances that he can fathom. Heaven and Sheol. 
And God is still here and God is also there. He's like, if I make my bed in the heavens, the highest of the heavens on uh, uh, beyond the cosmos, beyond what we can fathom and understand, if I make my bed in the highest of the heights, you are there. And then he thinks, but, but if the opposite, if I make my bed in the, the lowest of the depths, into the grave, the unknowns of the grave, the darkest of places that he can imagine, Sheol, he says, but you are also there. That God is there and here, here and there, all at the same time, that there is no place that we could go that we would be separated from the presence of God. This is what is stirring in the heart and spirit of David. This is what is overwhelming him as he reflects upon the omnipresence of God. David drinks in deep comfort that there is nowhere that God is not God with us. Let me say that again. David is drinking in deep comfort that there is nowhere that God is not God with us. What do you mean? He's Emmanuel. He has always been and always will be Emmanuel, God with us. Is he Emmanuel in the light? Certainly he's Emmanuel in the light. We feel that. We know that when things are going good, where we're on top of the mountain, we feel like he is with us. He is blessing us. He is on our side. So certainly he is Emmanuel, God with us in the light. But even more profound than that, he is God with us, pursuing us in the darkest night. The not even our darkest moment is absent of his presence. Not even the darkest moments in human history are absent of his presence. He is there. Emmanuel, God with us, God pursuing us. And I love this. This is something I just noticed this week as I was soaking in this text. Notice this, he also says in verses 7 through 12 here that the creator is not only present with them, but again, he says his hand is leading him and his hand is holding him. He says, even there, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, Your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. There's something beautiful happening here with the hand of God in David's revelation of the omnis of God, David's revelation of the the greatness of God, that God is omniscient, that he's all-knowing, and that he places this loving, assuring hand upon us. And that God is omnipresent, that he is with us, that he's there. But not only is he with us in just sort of this educational or theological or mental ascent sort of idea. No, he is so real and so with us that he is holding our hand, that he is guiding us by holding, that he is holding us in his hand. Here we have another image of this idea of a father intimately leading his child by the hand or a father, mother 
mother intimately holding their child in their hands, comforting them, letting them know I'm here. You are safe and secure in my arms because I am here. David is reflecting upon the fact that God is ever present and there's nowhere he can go that God is not fully present with him. Tozer said it like this, the knowledge that we are never alone calms the troubled sea of our lives and speaks peace to our souls. The knowledge that we are never alone calms the troubled sea of our lives and speaks peace to our souls. I speak peace to your soul this morning, church. Rest in this idea that God is all-knowing and yet loves you. God is all-present. He has seen every moment of your life, even the darkest moments, and yet still pursuing, still desiring to be with you, still longing intimate relationship with you. He knows you. He is present with you. And lastly, verses 13 through 18, the omnipotence of God. David begins to reflect upon God's omnipotence, that God is all-powerful. Omnipotence will be defined like this, that God can do all things consistent with his holy nature and will. Nothing can frustrate the accomplishment of his sovereign purpose. Nothing can frustrate, frustrate the accomplishment of his sovereign purpose. David says it like this, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We love that part of the scripture. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. But in the context of what is happening in this song, in this poem of David, this rhythm and rhyme filled with this emotion and awe-inspired words that he pens here. He is saying, God, you are all-powerful. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. David gives way to humble adoration that he is the created one, wholly dependent on the power of his creator. David recognizes God has created him for a purpose in his omnipotence, in his power. The days of David's life are already recorded, it tells us. He says, your eyes saw my unformed substance, verse 16. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. So he is seeing and recognizing that God has a purpose, so much so that he's already written the days of his life in his book. And this power of God, this all-powerful God, this is not troubling for David. No, he is in awe of God's purpose. He is in awe of God's plans. To David, he says that these works are wonderful to him, that these thoughts are precious to him. Once again, David refers, refers to God's power in a very uh, intimate and close way. 
David recognizes when he says that you formed me, you, excuse me, you formed my inward parts. Now catch this. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. He's referring to God's power in this intimate and close way. He's saying, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Listen to this. The delicate touch of the omnipotent one. With all the power at his disposal, our creation, David is recognizing his creation isn't just some random collision of molecules or the survival of the fittest seed. No, no. He chooses to come closer than we can imagine. The creator chooses to come closer than we can imagine and to tediously, skillfully, and beautifully handcraft us. Notice the hand of God again at work in this idea of his omnipotence. That he has knit us together in his mother's womb. That he has taken the time to form us, to shape us. That we are his workmanship. That we are his craftsmanship. That we are fearfully and wonderfully made by the all-powerful one, God himself. Again, I, I read a lot of uh, Tozer as I was preparing for Psalm 139. A.W. Tozer said this, he said, the worshiping man finds this knowledge a source of wonderful strength for his inner life. His faith rises to take the great leap upward into the fellowship of him who can do whatever he wills to do, for whom nothing is hard or difficult because he possesses power absolute. God is all-powerful, but he's not just all-powerful out there in some sort of theological or theoretical way. He is all-powerful in that he has put you together. And not only did he put you together, not only did he come close and knit you together, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, but he did it for a purpose. And he wrote all the days of your life in, your, in his book before there was yet even one. Oh, the wonder to be known by a God who is omniscient to be known by a God who is omnipresent to be known by a God who is omnipotent. You are known today. God has not forgotten you. God has not abandoned you. And yes, God will help in your time of trial and struggle. David, uh, the psalmist, was caught up in wonder about the intimate knowledge the creator God had of him. Later in the New Testament, the apostle Paul would sort of summarize this idea of this wonder that David had when he was at Areopagus or Mars Hill. When he came across this unknown God, as he looked at all of the gods that they worshipped at Areopagus at Mars Hill, and he came across the inscription, this idol that they had, and the inscription said, to the unknown God, Paul began to explain this God being Jesus. 
And he makes this statement that sort of summarizes this idea altogether. He says that it's in him, in Jesus, that we live and move and have our being, that we are known by God in such a way that we live in him, that we move in him, that our very being exists in God and God alone. This is why David could end the psalm this way. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. David opens up fully and says, my life, God, is laid bare before you. Search me. Know me, God. See, point out if there's anything in me that's contrary to your kingdom and shape me and form me, lead me in the way of everlasting life. Church, meditate on this scripture today, this week. Go back and read all of Psalm 139 with this in mind, that God is beautifully, David sees God's hand beautifully, tediously, miraculously working in his life, assuring him, letting him know that he's present and that he is all-powerful, willing to lead him and willing to help him in his times of trouble. Think on these things this week. God is for you. God is with you. God knows you deeply and intimately. Rest in that truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are ever-present. Thank you that you are all-knowing and all-powerful. Thank you that you are Emmanuel, God, with us, that you desire for all of these attributes of yours to be present in our lives. Help us to reflect upon them and to stand in awe and wonder before you. You are good. You are so good. You will never forget us. You will never leave us or forsake us. You are always available to help us, to save us. We trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. And before you go, let me speak this blessing over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Thank you for listening. It's our desire to lead people to know Christ and to make Him known. If you'd like to support the ministry of Hope Assembly, go to hopeassembly.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.